How do you tell an epic story well? So I'm thinking about those big events, you know, the sinking of the Titanic, uh, D-Day, the Vietnam War. They're epic stories, aren't they? Well, for generations, filmmakers and novelists have discovered that a great way to tell those stories is to focus just on one or two individual characters in those stories. So think about the film Titanic. It focuses on Rose and Jack to tell the big story of what's going on in the background. Band of Brothers focuses on one company and follows them through D-Day and and all the rest of the things that go on uh, in the Second World War. Apocalypse Now follows Captain Willard through the events there and tells the bigger story by telling you the the characters uh, that are in there. Focusing on one or two characters helps us understand the implications of some of these monumental events. And this is no new idea. John here has done this for us in this section of John's Gospel. We've got an absolutely epic, huge event that's happening. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But instead of focusing on how it happened, if you notice there's not actually the mention of how Jesus was resurrected. Instead we focus on people and how they reacted to the resurrection. We focus on how people came to believe that it was true. And John here tells us four personal stories in this section of John's Gospel. In the midst of these sort of... Uh, monumental, epoch-changing events. We start off with John the Quick, who's quick to believe what's going on, Mary the Confused. Tonight we'll be looking at Thomas the Skeptic, and then later on in John you get Peter the Black Slider. And as we go through, it's almost as though John is sort of pointing the spotlight on us, the reader. Which are you? Where do you fit into this story? Are you quick to believe, like John? Does it take you a bit longer, like Mary? Are you a bit of a sceptic like Thomas? Or have you turned away from the faith like Peter? Well, there's a message for all of us here in John's Gospel. And this morning we're just going to focus on those first two accounts, uh, John and Mary. So firstly, we're going to see John the Quick's uh, story, uh, verses uh, 1 to 9. I'll just read us uh, verses uh, 1 to 3. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we uh, do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. We've moved on uh, from the events of last time that were on the Friday, now onto the first day of the week. So by Jewish way of thinking, that was Sunday morning. And Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb and she sees the stone has been rolled away. The tomb has been opened. She must be wondering, well, what's going on? Someone must have come and taken the body. So she sets off to find Peter and John. John always refers to himself in the gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it's John that we're talking about there. And she tells them they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Let's pause for a second there. It's interesting, isn't it? She says, we don't know where uh, they have laid him. It's a bit of a clue that Mary wasn't actually alone at the tomb that morning. John is being selective in what he uh, tells us in his gospel. He's trying to tell us these individual accounts. But it's a reminder that John's gospel actually fits into a much bigger hole. It's likely that there were three women who went to the tomb that morning. Uh, Because we find out that in other Gospels. But John just focuses in on Mary. Mary runs off, but the other women stay 
uh, and according to the other Gospels, meet an angel who explains to them uh, what has happened. So it's a bit of a clue that John knows that there are other accounts. He knows that he's not telling the full uh, story, but he's expecting you to know the other accounts as well. And the accounts are not contradictory. They do fit together. I did a bit of work this week trying to see how it all fits together. They do. But each Gospel gives us a slightly different piece of the puzzle uh, to work out what happened that day. And if you want to find out more about that, there are plenty of good books and blog posts that have sort of put those things together. But it's a little reminder here that John is being accurate, if you think about it. He could have written, uh, I, couldn't he? You know, I don't know where they've laid him, but he wrote we, because that's probably what she said, because she was with other people. But John here finds out that something has happened to the body, and he and Peter set off running. But John the Quick, well, he's quick in more than one way. He's not just quick to believe. It turns out he's quicker to run uh, as well, because he gets there first and outruns Peter. But John, he sort of lingers at the entrance. I wonder if he's sort of thinking, well, what will I find if I go in? Is someone inside? So he sort of sticks his head in at the tomb, stoops down, and sees grave clothes lying there. But importantly, no body. So by showing us this, he's telling us this hasn't been a quick grab and run. I don't know if you ever wondered why there's the mention of the grave clothes. Because if you think about it, if somebody was going to steal the body, you wouldn't take the time to unwrap it first, would you? You'd just stick it on your shoulder and and run away with it. Because actually, as well, if they have unwrapped the body, they've done it at the tomb. Which is a a very dangerous place to do it, if you think about it, right in the centre with those soldiers there. And who would want to unwrap a dead body anyway? It seems very strange that you would do that. So John mentions that the grave clothes, they're there. But there's no body in them. And Peter arrives, and in typical Peter fashion, he doesn't linger at the door. He bursts straight in uh, to the tomb. And he too sees the grave clothes. He too sees that there's no body. And he even notices that the face cloth that was put on Jesus' face, it's not sort of flung to the side as though he's been stolen. It's neatly folded up. Somebody actually took the time to fold up the cloth that was on Jesus' face. So not only is Jesus' body gone... But somebody has been in the tomb. It wasn't that Jesus' body just disappeared. Because somebody has folded up the grave clothes. And now John enters the tomb. He sees it all. The grave clothes, the empty tomb, the folded face cloth. And our account here says that he believes. He believes that Jesus has done what he said he would. That Jesus has risen from the dead. John is really quick to pick up on what's happening. But he mentions to us in verse 9, the other disciples are not so quick. Uh, So uh, verses 8 and 9. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they, the other disciples, did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. So John is ahead of the other disciples, if you like. He's quick to believe. But the other disciples, they haven't understood it yet. So even before John has seen Jesus physically risen from the dead, he believes that it's happened. He sees and believes. But it's interesting, isn't it? It says he sees, not they see. Peter is a bit more ambiguous. If you look on the back of your notice sheets, you'll see there there's Luke 24, verse 12, which is the parallel account. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marvelling at what had happened. He's sort of amazed at what's going on, but it doesn't say at this point that he believes. So John here at this point, well, he's believing. Peter, well, he's marvelling. And Mary, well, she's still really confused uh, as to what's going on. 
So the next thing we see is Mary the confused story. Uh, That's verses 10 uh, to 18. Uh, Let me just read those first few verses to you. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not worry where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So John and Peter return back to where they're staying in Jerusalem. But Mary remains at the tomb. Uh, She's weeping, she's crying. At this point, she's still thinking that somebody has stolen or moved the body. She stoops in to look into the entrance of the tomb. Is he definitely not there? Have I just not seen light? And to her huge surprise, she finds two angels dressed in white, sitting where Jesus' body had been laid. Now their positioning is significant. Uh, Jesus tells us... Positioning is significant, but I think we'll look at it a bit later on. Uh, But uh, it is significant. Um, Luke tells us that they appeared like men. Which explains why Mary's not so taken aback by this. They ask her why she's weeping. Why is she crying? Well, if you think about it, that's a very cruel question, isn't it? She's in a graveyard. She's in with tombs. Why do people normally cry at tombs? Well, they've lost someone. It's a very cruel question, uh, if you think about it. If if it weren't for what was going to happen. Well, she, uh, uh, she tells them they've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Uh, The same thing that she said to Peter and John. Her question is answered as she turns around though. She just doesn't realise it yet. She's seen Jesus but she doesn't know who he is. Isn't that just the story of the Gospels if you think about it? They've got Jesus there with them but they don't know who he is. It continues right, right up till here. God himself if you think about it has been with his disciples and they don't know who he is. Well, perhaps here it's the sun or the tears that are keeping her from seeing. But Jesus repeats the question of the angels. You see there in verse 15? Woman, why are you weeping? And he adds the almost ironic question, who are you seeking? And she supposes it's the gardener. Now, we're told in the last passage, weren't we, that this is, after all, a garden. Do you know where he is? She says. And then Jesus calls her by name, Mary. And then she realises, she knows. Teacher, she says in their shared dialect. So it's not a case of mistaken identity. He knows Mary. He tells her not to cling to him. He hasn't gone to the Father yet. He hasn't yet been uh, sent his spirit to be with his disciples. So he might be with them more permanently. That's what he, he needs to do. She's not to cling to him because he's only going to be around for 40 days. And that's what he tells Mary to tell the other disciples. And that's just what Mary does. You see there in verse 18? Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. She goes to the disciples and tells the disciples that she's seen the Lord. 
the Lord has appeared to Mary. And now Mary sees and believes. But there's three things in Mary's story that tells a bit of a bigger picture. That's basically the plot. But there are three things that tell us a bit more about what's going on. The first is that the tomb tells a story. That's why I, I said that we'd talk about it a bit later on. Well, the angel sat on the stone shelf there, one at the other end. One at one, one end, one at the other end. It's a picture of something bigger. It's a reminder of the very centre of Jewish life. Not just the temple at the heart of Jerusalem, not just the Holy of Holies at the heart of the temple, but the Ark of the Covenant that's right in the heart of the Holy of Holies. If you don't know about the Ark of the Covenant, I put Exodus 25, verses 18 and 19 on the back. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work uh, shall you make them. On the two ends are the mercy seats, that's the Ark of the Covenant. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The mercy seat, the, the Ark of the Covenant, was a box with two angels on top, one at one end, one at the other. It was the holiest place in the whole of uh, Judaism. The mercy seat was where God met with his people. The place where atonement was made for their sins. And the tomb here is a reminder of what has happened. Jesus has died for his people's sins. He is that sacrifice. His tomb, if you like, is now the mercy seat where we meet with God. Jesus' death was that sacrifice, like the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, but with infinite value. It's reminding us of what has taken place. Now it's not about the temple. It's not about the Ark of the Covenant. It's about Jesus' death and resurrection. That's now the heart of our faith. So the tomb tells a story. The garden also tells a story. If you remember, she thinks that uh, Jesus is the gardener. Well, just as the first creation started in a garden, so the new creation starts in a garden. The first Adam was a gardener. That's what God gave him to do, to tend the garden. And the second Adam was mistaken for a gardener. In that sense, she almost gets his identity correct in a way, uh, but more by accident. Jesus is the new Adam. He is the new gardener, if you like, the firstborn from among the dead, founder of a new humanity. He's the founder of a, he's ahead of a new humanity, just as Adam is the head of the old humanity. Jesus here is the first fruits of the one to come, of what's to come, of all the people that he will raise and give eternal life. Spiritually, he, he brings us to life, doesn't he? he? He raises us with him. And then physically, one day he will raise us. But he's the firstborn, he's the first. And he does it here in this garden. And when he raises us, we'll be with him in another garden, won't we? Where there'll be no weeping or pain or death. I think all of us have a longing for that place, don't we? That other garden. Homesickness for Eden, if you like. Where we're supposed to be. So the garden tells a story as well. Of that new creation that's starting with Jesus. And the question that Jesus asks her tells a story. Isn't it interesting that back in the first garden, God asks Adam and Eve questions that he already knows the answers to. You know, where are you? Uh, Or where is your brother? Things like that. Well, here he asks Mary, "Who, who are you seeking? Well, the irony was that Mary was stood right in front of the one that she was seeking. He was actually there, right in front of her. Could that be you this morning? You've searched for something all your life. Not just a place, Eden, but a person, the Lord Jesus, the risen one. 
The one that we can now cling to because he has ascended to the Father. He sent his spirit in his place to be with us. So we don't cling to his physical presence just as Mary doesn't. But we cling to him by his spirit, by his word. His permanent presence with us. Is it that the person we're seeking is right in front of us? Who are you seeking? Well, it could actually be the same for us as Christians this morning. Are we agitated, restless? Could it be that actually what we're looking for is right in front of us? Right there in the Lord Jesus. So often we're prone to wonder, aren't we, to look all over the place for something more, something deeper. When actually all that we could want, all that we could need, is right there in Christ. It's a bit like that... um, that song, Pina Coladas. I don't know if you know that one. You know, if you like Pina Coladas. I know it sounds a bit of a strange illustration, um, but bear with me. Um, if you know that song, it's about a man who uh, gets bored with his wife, and he writes to a lonely hearts column, and he writes all these sort of secret passions that he likes to do. You know, Pina Coladas, getting caught in the rain, all these sorts of things, and he writes off to a lonely hearts column to see if somebody will write back, and somebody writes back who likes all those things. And they meet for, you know, an illicit rendezvous. And he turns up, and who's there? His wife. And he had no idea that she shared all those same passions, that she liked pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. He had no idea that actually all he ever wanted was right in front of him. And sometimes I think we can be like that as Christians. We forget that we've got Christ. And that he is all we could ever want, all we could ever need. We go wandering off to other things. But all we need is Christ. Who are we seeking? Well, we seek Christ. Because all the things that we need are found in him. So to finish, what's your story? It's all well and good hearing about John and Mary. But what about you this morning? As I said at the beginning, John sort of shines a spotlight on us. Perhaps you're like John. You know, you're always the first to believe, quick to uh, take up things. You've known for a long time that you'd end up believing in Jesus. You've just been waiting for the right opportunity. Well, if that's you, this used to be a wonderful time, wouldn't it, to begin that life with Jesus, to be quick to believe in him. Or perhaps you're like Mary, a bit confused by it all. It's not that you're against it, but you'd like to find out more. You don't quite understand what's happening. Well, can I encourage you to take time to investigate uh, Christianity, to investigate uh, the faith? You can talk to me afterwards or or fill in a blue slip and say you want to find out a bit more. Because there's always time to to get those things clear, uh, to find out more. (coughs) Or perhaps you're not like either. Perhaps you're more like Thomas, the sceptic. Well, if that's you, can I encourage you to come tonight and hear what Jesus said to him? Now, many of us here will have our own stories, won't we? Uh, How we became to believe in Jesus, uh, that he really was who he said he is. How we came to join that new humanity that Jesus has started, uh, that we call the church. How we found what we were seeking for. Some of us found it when we weren't even seeking, didn't we? Well, why not ask somebody about their story this Easter time over coffee? That could be a really encouraging thing to do. Find out how was it that they uh, came to find out about the Lord Jesus. But what's your story this Easter? Do you believe that Christ has risen from the grave? Do you believe that his death was a sacrifice for our sin? Have you come to the point of clinging to him alone for all that you could want and need? Well, let's pray that God would open our eyes to the truth of that at this Easter time. So let's pray that God would do that now.